Okay, mic check, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah, let's get it. Okay, so if y'all wanna get crazy, we can get crazy. crazy, 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 crazy. Red, what? What's up, everybody? Welcome to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passport to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne. I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. And I'm so, so excited for this episode. This is our 30th episode. Can you believe it? Because I cannot. It is so crazy that we have made it to episode 30. I think, like I said before, it feels like I've been doing this podcast for no time at all. And then also it feels like I've been doing it for the longest time just because I feel like I am so comfortable with y'all. And thank y'all so much for listening to the show and chiming in on everything. I'm just so appreciative. And I have to say, we are on five stars on Apple Podcasts. I had not checked, but thank you all for giving me good ratings on that. And Thank you all for continuing to listen in. Y'all are just the best, and I love you all so much. So, yeah, this is episode 30, and, you know, I've made some references to theater in the past on the show, and that is because, along with being a filmmaker, I grew up doing theater. Like, I've been doing theater since I was a kid. I went to college for theater. I did theater all throughout high school. I also did some theater after college, and I direct theater. So there will be a lot of references to theater in this episode today because greetings from Bed-Stuy. Today's adventure is in pizza, plays, and protests, and we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of, I think, one of the best films ever made, this film being titled Do the Right Thing. And because we have so much to dig into in regards to this film, I could talk about this film for hours, but y'all don't have that long, and I don't have that long to keep you. So... Instead of doing our usual other segments, we will just be getting straight into the nitty gritty of Do the Right Thing. You are here for one reason, one reason only, to learn, to learn, to learn. So Do the Right Thing was released in 1989. It was directed by Spike Lee. And here's a little summary of the film if you have not seen it. This classic film takes place on the hottest day of the summer in Bed-Stuy as tensions rise over the course of the day for several reasons. The major reason being many threads of racial tension throughout the neighborhood. Mookie, played by Spike Lee, works as a delivery person at Sal's Pizzeria, and Sal is played by Danny and Yellow. 
And he has constant tension, Mookie has constant tension with Sal's racist son, Pino, played by John Turturro. And also, Mookie's friend, Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito, has beef with Sal for refusing to put any black people up on the wall of fame in his restaurant, even though his customer base is all black folks. We also have Radio Rahim, played by Bill Nunn, who walks around the neighborhood with his huge boombox playing Fight the Power by Public Enemy in constant protest. Add in even more incredible neighborhood staples, played by the likes of Ozzie Davis, Ruby D, Samuel L. Jackson, Rosie Perez, Roger Gunnivor Smith, Martin Lawrence, Joao Lee, Richard Edson, Robin Harris, and Frankie Faison, among others, as well as the tragic and unfortunately timeless final act. And you truly get, again, a timeless film that will outlive us all. And it must be noted that one of these cast members, Frankie Faison, is from a little show on HBO called... The wire. When you walk in the garden, watch your Yes, we do indeed have a nigga from the wire in Do the Right Thing. And if you follow the podcast, you know that I have a little theory that at least 75% of all black film will contain at least one nigga from the wire. And We have that here in Mr. Frankie Faison, who is so great and so funny in this movie. And we'll get into the role that he plays and all of these roles and all of these performances in a little bit. So some fun facts about Do the Right Thing. This film is partially inspired by an actual incident that happened on Howard Beach where some black kids were chased out of a pizzeria by white kids and there were baseball bats involved in this and there are lots of little details from this actual incident that Spike does fit into the film. We will get into some of Spike's process in regards to making this film. There are many P words that we'll get into among pizza, protest, and plays, and one of them being Spike's process. And him wanting to involve little bits and pieces from this actual incident in the film was part of his process. Fun fact number two... Robert De Niro was Spike's original choice to play Sal, and Lawrence Fishburne was the original choice to play Radio Rahim. Both turned down their respective roles because they resembled roles that they had played in their past, so Robert De Niro was also quite busy, and also the role of Radio Rahim is kind of similar to the role that Lawrence Fishburne played in School Days, which was the film that Spike Lee had made before this. And though Spike Lee did always want Bill Nunn to be in the film. It took him a little bit for him to realize that he would be great as the role of Radio Rahim, which he absolutely was. Other rumors of casting offers, some of which I know for sure, based on what Spike has said, some are just kind of like floating around the internet. But other of these casting offers that were rumored include Kadeem Hardison, 
who is from a different world, and he was also in school days. Spike had thought of him as possibly playing Buggin' Out. James Earl Jones as DeMayer was also another option. That role ended up going to Ozzie Davis. Matt Dillon was at some point thought of to play Pino, but having John Turturro play Pino was the start of him and Spike's amazing working relationship, so that all worked out well. Joe Montagna and Joe Pesci were also considered for the role of Sal, even though, according to Spike, Danny and Yellow was always a very early choice, and he talks about that a lot. And also, Delroy Lindo was asked to audition for one of the corner men, two of which are played by Frankie Faison and Robin Harris. And again... Another working relationship that would have probably just started earlier. But of course, Delroy Lindo did eventually become a frequent working partner of Spike Lee. Third fun fact is that this year at the Oscars, which was the 62nd Oscar Awards, Kim Basinger was the person who got to announce the nominees and the winner for Best Picture. And during her speech, she did something so dope. She basically talked about the fact that Do the Right Thing was snubbed. We, um, we've got five great films here. And they're great for one reason. Because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it. Because, ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all. And that's do the right thing. Yes. 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 Okay, so on to business. And it absolutely was. I mean, so here were the nominees for Best Picture that year. Driving Miss Daisy. Born on the 4th of July, which is good. Dead Poet Society, which is good. Field of Dreams, which is fine. My Left Foot, which is good. I don't know if I would nominate for that for Best Picture. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis winning Best Actor is like a no-brainer there. But Driving Miss Daisy won. And Driving Miss Daisy is not a good movie. It is the absolute most Oscar move that could ever have been done. And of course that pissed Spike Lee off. I mean... This movie is pretty much all about respectability politics and this friendship and how this racist old woman was taught not to be racist by a black dude who worked for her. Like, you know, I like Jessica Tandy and Morgan Freeman, but come on. And we saw the same thing with Green Book a couple years ago. It's just these trash movies where we get to see a white person feel good about themselves. And so, of course... You know, there really is no room for that and Do the Right Thing, so it was not nominated. It was, however, nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Spike Lee, which he lost to Dead Poet Society, and Best Supporting Actor for Danny and Yellow. He was nominated, and he did not win either. 
I think this film could have been nominated for so many more Oscars. I think Ruby D could have gotten nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I think Ozzie Davis could have gotten nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I think we definitely could have seen some cinematography nominations, some costume nominations. Ruth E. Carter killed these fucking costumes. So simple and yet adds so much life to this piece. The production design is amazing. I mean, it's just an overall excellent, excellent film. So my first experience with this movie is that, you know, I had seen this on TV, broken up into pieces, censored, all kinds of things like that. So I had not really seen it in its true fullest form, for real, for real, for real, until this past summer when I spied it on my brother's DVD shelf. And we had also definitely had this movie on VHS back in the day. But I feel like because of the parts with nudity, we were not allowed to watch it as kids, but we definitely had this. We definitely had this on VHS back in the day. So I snagged this from my brother's DVD shelf this summer and was just reminded about how absolutely incredible and spot on this movie is. I mean, I'd happened to watch it around the time George Floyd was murdered and it just bought up so many feelings. You know, I had had, I had called my dad on the phone not too much longer after George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, I've been asking him these questions, just trying to get to know more about him and more about his past life and everything like that. And one of the questions I asked him was, you know, what is something about today that really surprises you? And he said how bad racism still is. You know, my dad was born in the 50s, so he has experienced a lot. So the fact that he thinks it's still bad and in a way kind of getting worse because it's less covert, it's happening really right in front of people's faces with access to things like cell phone footage and being able to really spread things far and wide via social media. I mean, we've been seeing footage forever, you know, since the 60s and the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. We've been seeing this footage, but I think the immediacy of it after going through Obama's presidency, especially where, you know, people thought for some reason that we were living in a post-racial society. I think it's so important to have pieces like this that are at the same time time capsules and also feel incredibly present. I mean, the absolute present nature of this film is just not shocking, but Sad in a lot of ways. Sad in a lot of ways. And so I got this film on Blu-ray for Christmas, the Criterion Collection edition for my aunt, and I watched it again for the podcast, which leads me to one of the first things that I want to talk about in terms of these P words that we going to talk about today. So yes, first of all, let's talk about this presentation of this Criterion Blu-ray. Now I have to say, if you are a fan of this film, which most likely you are, because it's a great movie, 
you should pick up the Criterion Blu-ray. The presentation alone is absolutely astounding. First of all, it comes in this, it almost looks like a double edition. It has two discs that are colored with green, black, and red, our colors, our colors. And it has this beautiful kind of like fold over case inside of the big case that has the iconic, iconic design of the title on it in a red brick, kind of representing that red brick that you see in the movie with the three guys at the corner who are talking. And then you get this, you know, this fold thing on the inside, which is a beautiful painting of all of the characters on the block together. It's really, really dope. I mean, you see all of these main characters in this beautiful painting, a painting that I honestly really want for my room. It's just gorgeous and almost has this kind of 80s, 90s New York art artistic style to it. And it also includes a booklet most Criterion Collection editions do include a booklet, and they include usually an interview with the filmmaker. What's special about this is that it includes an essay about the film, which usually Criterion Collection editions do as well. And this includes excerpts from Spike Lee's journal about the creation of the film. It is so absolutely fascinating, which leads us to these next P's of process and preparation. Now, at this time, I have not read through all of the journal. I've read through most of it. It is so, so cool to get a peek into Spike's process for this film. He started working on the ideas for this movie as he was promoting School Days, which was being released at the time. And he talks a lot about how he wants to start experimenting with his process based on what he's feeling at the time, as well as based on kind of what he wanted to push himself toward after making She's Gotta Have It in School Days. He talks about the fact that a lot of his films up to that point were considered comedies and you know there is definitely a comedic sense in this movie I think Spike is very aware of his humor and how important his humor is in his films and he's definitely aware of comedic moments and bits of comedic tone that he wanted to put in this movie I mean first of all talking about his writing process is so cool. It really does remind me of the process that I'm going through right now in terms of this film that I'm writing. He talks about what he wants the characters to be. I love hearing him talk about these characters from such an early point and kind of seeing how they evolved from his first thoughts into what they became. You know, the fact that he knew he wanted to cast his sister, Joie Lee, as his actual sister in the film and trying to work on crafting that to the best way possible. There was a point where the ending, before 
the studios wanted him to change it. I think it was originally going to be a Paramount movie, but then Paramount was trying to fuck around with it too much, so he went to Universal. You know, they wanted a more amicable ending, and originally Spike's ending was more amicable, and it also included Radio Raheem possibly not dying. He toyed around with the possibility of Radio Raheem being paralyzed and seeing him at the end walking around with a smaller boombox and with a uh, brace around his neck. And of course, I'm glad that all of these things that he discussed in his process ended up being the way that they were in the film. I think a lot of the choices that he ended up making were, of course, a lot stronger. And this is kind of the process that you go through when you're making a film, right? You have all these initial ideas, all these initial thoughts, and you try to put them together in the best way possible. And you see when talking to friends and talking to people that you trust your designers, your cinematographer, all these people, as well as just giving it time, giving things time to sink in, and also allowing things to happen in the real world. I think, unfortunately, you know, Spike was inspired by the Howard Beach incident, as well as many other Black people who had been shot, killed, choked out by the police over time. So I think the more that those things happened, unfortunately, kind of fueled his fire a bit and got him to be even more specific about what he wanted to convey with the film. It's also so cool to see, as I talked about with the fun facts, his thoughts about casting were very, very interesting and seeing how things ended up lining up perfectly. I mean, as a director, you have all these thoughts about who you want to be in the film, and that can really help you write the film and figure out who these characters are going to be. It can really help them come to life in your mind and continue to be more specific. So the fact that he wanted Robert De Niro at first to play Sal, I think is a very interesting choice because... It kind of would have come off in a way with this legend playing this character. I think there would have been, uh, I don't know, a little bit of distance in a way. I think you would have felt like you were watching Robert De Niro play Sal versus watching Sal the character. And I think that's why it's so perfect that Danny and Yellow ends up playing this character because he fully becomes Sal. You believe him from jump that this is a character that is drawn out of this world rather than watching Robert De Niro play this role. And it's interesting that Spike Lee casting himself as Mookie, first of all, I gotta say, Spike Lee is fucking hot in this movie. Oh, it's so weird because it's like, (laughs) it's Spike Lee. He's also kind of hot as Mars Blackman and She's Gotta Have It. It's just so weird thinking of him in this way because 
as a filmmaker, like Spike Lee is like everybody's uncle. You know what I mean? I do not see him in that way. But I mean, props to Ruth Carter for putting him in these really dope costumes. He's wearing at some point a Dodgers jersey. He is also wearing his Sal's uniform. He just looks great. The haircut is great. The necklace is great. The way that the sunlight hits his eyes, it's just, I can't believe I'm talking about how hot Spike Lee is in this movie, but it's true. And him discovering the character of Mookie while he's writing is very, very cool and interesting. And it's very interesting, too, to take a look at his intentions with the film. I think originally he had some very strong intentions that he wanted to hit that absolutely come through in the film. There's also a little bit of him in this journal talking about how he wants to, at some point, bring up drugs and how drugs affect the Black community. And at some point, he does realize that this would be too much to stuff into this movie with everything that's going on. So it's not in this movie, but it does end up in Jungle Fever, which is so fucking cool. As a writer, you know, you have all these ideas and sometimes some particular ideas do not fit in a particular film. But then to see them come out in another film is it's just so great and it really is affirming for me to read this journal because when you're writing by yourself sometimes it can really feel like bullshit it can really feel like you're onto something some days and that you're not onto something some days and to see spike lee who is regarded as one of the greatest filmmakers of all time To see him go through this process and to be able to read this process, yeah, it just gave me so much life in a way. This is kind of the way, even before I was reading Spike's journal, this is the way that I've been approaching the creation of this film that I'm writing right now. And it's great to see that there are some days where Spike didn't write. He kind of let it go for a couple days because he was promoting school days and doing other things, living his life, going to see Michael Jackson at the Madison Square Garden, going to see the Knicks lose. It's really highly recommended that you also get this Blu-ray edition to be able to read this journal. And I think this journal may also be available in print elsewhere, but it is just absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And to also see that he outlines on index cards like I do, or at least he did before computers and everything. I just love it. I love it so much. There is no end to a writer-director's process that I want to see. It just really helps push me forward in my own process. It really gets me thinking more about the fact that this is a process. It's not going to be perfect the first time around. You're going to have intentions that become stronger as time goes on. You're going to have characters that get stronger as time goes on. And it's 
Oh, it's just so cool. I could go on about this part for days, but we must move on. We must move on to these performances in this movie and the ways in which this film actually reminds me of a play. So first of all, let's talk about Ruby D and Ozzy Davis in this movie. They are absolutely brilliant. First of all, if you don't know, Ruby D and Ozzy Davis are legendary, legendary actors that have a background in theater, and they are also married. So watching them play Demer and Mother Sister is just absolutely wonderful. It's such a joy. They have such wonderful chemistry playing characters who, well, Mother Sister doesn't like Demare because she just considers him to be a drunk. And Demare loves Mother Sister. So to see them kind of play off each other and do this kind of back and forth, this kind of tete-a-tete, if you will, this bickering that they do. Hey, you old drunk. What did I tell you about drinking in front of my stoop? Move on, you're blocking my view. You are ugly enough. Don't stare at me. The evil eye doesn't work on me. Mother, sister, you've been talking about me for 18 years. What have I ever done to you? You are a drunk fool. Besides that, the mayor don't bother nobody. And nobody don't bother the mayor but you. The man just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I even love you. Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love. One day, you're going to be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're going to be nice. At least civil. Just absolutely wonderful. It feels so natural. And Spike's journal, he says that, you know, he can give them an idea of what to do, but... There's a kind of magic that a married couple with this gravitas just, you can't write it. You can't write it. It's just there. And it's with years of marriage and years of knowing each other and just also being amazing actors. I mean, I think both of them could have gotten nominated for Oscars in this film. Ruby D did eventually get nominated for American Gangster, but... Her work as mother-sister in this movie is just impeccable. I mean, the way that she really rides both of those lines of her name as mother and sister, she kind of watches over the block as a mother and then is kind of part of the block with the younger generation, mostly draw Lee's character. She brings layers to this character that I don't think are necessarily on the page. She brings a gravitas just on her own, just by being Ruby D. And then during the uprising part at the end of the film, when she's yelling, burn it down, burn it down, you see a whole other side of her that you didn't see throughout the whole film. Then, of course, we have Spike Lee playing Mookie, who is, for all intents and purposes, the main character of this film. It's interesting that Spike Lee, when talking about the process for this movie, he said he wanted to make sure that he made another ensemble film, which is absolutely true. It feels like 
the focus shifts properly in this movie between all of these amazing and wonderful characters, but that a lot of the main juice is from Mookie. And Spike Lee is very much aware of how he is as as an actor, which is perfectly suited for this role. I think his deadpan delivery that I kind of talked about in the Jungle Fever episode works really perfectly for this role. He's able to all at once display how he feels about the world in Spike Lee's terms, while also really melting into this younger guy who seems not aimless, but a little lost in really what he wants to do in the world. And of course, makes the choice to throw the garbage can through the window at the end of the film. John Carlo Esposito, in contrast to Spike Lee, who does his best in playing a character that's not necessarily close to himself, but he will act as close to Spike Lee as possible. John Carlo Esposito is a fucking chameleon. It is absolutely insane. You know, after being known for the past few years for playing roles like Gus on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and uh, the villain on The Mandalorian, John Carlo Esposito as bugging out in this film It's such an incredible performance. He looks so crazy in these big bug-eyed kind of glasses in this funky hairstyle. You know, even in school days, Spike Lee gives him a very strange hairstyle. And this character is such a big contrast to the character that he does play in school days, which is like this frat bro kind of guy. Bugging Out is the person in the movie who really kind of sets things off by asking Sal the question in his pizza shop. Yo, Mook! Mookie! What? How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, man. Huh? you, hey, don't stop with me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some set. And it's a sign of disrespect, of course. And it's also interesting because we're talking about Giancarlo Esposito. This man is half Italian in real life. So it's very interesting and kind of ironic for him to be asking, oh, and also accurate in a lot of ways because he's half Italian and he's half black. So he's like, why aren't there any brothers up on the wall? It is a very simple question very simple request, and it is met with so much vitriol from Sal and his two sons, Pino and Vino. And also, there is an amazing scene in this film that involves bugging out, 
where this white man who lives in the neighborhood, who just moved into a brownstone in the neighborhood, steps on bugging Out's fresh new white Jordans. You almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Ah, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new Fuck white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'll fuck you up quick two times. Two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck gentrification. Well, as <laughs> I understand it, this is a free country. Man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Man, oh I should fuck God. you for saying that stupid shit alone. So Buggin' Out goes over to this man's stoop before he can get into his house, and he goes over with some of the kids who are in the neighborhood, one of which is played by Martin Lawrence, and he just chews him out and reads him, and it's such a great scene. And also... It includes this great moment where Buggin' Out is like, Then why'd you move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. It's just an amazing, perfect moment. Giancarlo Esposito is brilliant in this film. And, you know, speaking about Kim Basinger calling this movie out at the Oscars and saying that it should have been nominated, there's another example of white allyship in terms of Giancarlo Esposito, in that when Aaron Paul won the Emmy for, I believe, the fourth season of Breaking Bad, he gave his speech and everything, and he was like, I cannot believe I'm standing on the stage, let alone just in this room. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, I am so honored to share this, this category with you and the rest of the other brilliant actors. Um. He's right. As good as Aaron Paul was in the season of that show, Giancarlo Esposito is just excellent, excellent, excellent in everything he does. And as much work as he's done, he's been in over a hundred projects. I think he deserves more love. And he's another person who, when I was thinking and putting the show together, thinking about kind of like running things to do, I was also thinking about doing a running thing where it's like, Giancarlo Esposito is in this film because he is in so many black films. So, moving on to our next major character, we have Bill Nunn playing Radio Rahim. So, like I was saying before, Lawrence Fishburne was offered the role of Radio Rahim, but as I said, he said the character felt too similar to his role in school days, and also he wanted to move on to leading roles, to which Spike Lee in his journal say he doesn't necessarily agree with that, but you know, moving on. So what he did was move Bill Nunn from being the role of Mr. Senior Love Daddy to putting Samuel Jackson in that role, and then moving Bill Nunn up to Radio Rahim. Now, Radio Rahim is an incredible, incredible character. He is mostly quiet and carries around his boombox in protest playing Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Him as a casting choice, I think, is so great because he takes up so much of the screen. That's part cinematography and part of how Bill Nunn is just built. And... Nobody's doing a dead stare like this man. Nobody. And what I like that Spike Lee does in terms of his film references is that they're not so overt in the way that they are uh, 
in Malcolm and Marie, where Sam Levinson just has Malcolm just rattling off all these different white filmmakers, Spike Lee puts his influences and his references, which there are a lot of, in much better ways. Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim has these rings. One says love and one says hate on each of his hands. And that is a reference to a wonderful film called The Night of the Hunter. So he's putting these references in in a much smarter way, in a way that actually makes sense for the story. And the couple of parts in which Radio Rahim does talk, I definitely think of the scene where he is in the Korean grocery store looking for some batteries for his boombox because he's been playing it all day and at some point during the day it dies so he's up in here looking for batteries and he's like i need d batteries and the korean owners say c batteries and radio rahim says d's motherfucker d's and on his album graduation the first track of that album is a song called Good Morning. And he uses that in his song. Kanye says, Wake up, Mr. West, Mr. West, Mr. France, Mr. By himself, he's so impressed. I mean, damn, did you even see the test? You got D's, motherfucker, D's, Rosie Perez, and yes, barely. Which brings us to Rosie Perez. Rosie Perez plays the role of Tina in this film, and Tina is Mookie's girlfriend and also baby mother. Now, when Spike was originally writing the script, he thought of Tina as a black woman. He wanted to make a comment on black women who are young mothers and who don't have stable baby fathers, and Mookie is not a stable baby father. He wanted someone who was from that area and who was, quote-unquote, ghetto. He went to a party, I believe, in L.A., Spike Lee, and he saw Rosie Perez dancing at this party, and he was just blown away by her presence, and then he started talking to her. She revealed that she was from Fort Greene, which is where Spike Lee was from, and I think he also, understandably, was just obsessed with how she was, her being, the rhythm of how she talks and really who she is as a person, which she completely brings to the role. So he adjusted and made uh, Tina a Puerto Rican role, still included her mother and the sour relationship that they kind of have and the sour relationship that Mookie has with Tina's mother. It's very interesting that Spike in his journal talks a lot about wanting to consciously beef up the female roles in this film and pay them a lot of respect. I appreciate his efforts, but I will say the one critique, the one note I have for this film And I agree with Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks has this criticism, too, is that the women kind of feel like they were still written by a white guy because they are still, at the end of the day, kind of surface level. I mean, Joali's character, Jade, kind of gets into that territory in terms of being the affections of Sal, who owns the pizza joint. 
And then there's a character who, there's like a little boy who Demayer staves from getting hit by a car. And then his mother comes out and his mother is just like, you know, going off on Demayer. And then when Demayer makes it clear that, you know, he saved her child, then she goes off on the child and then goes off on Demayer again about like, don't tell me how to talk to my child. This has been my child. And it just feels at the end of the day still very stereotypical. And the scene where Mookie goes to Rosie Perez's apartment and rubs ice all over her body kind of makes me uncomfortable too. It does feel a bit exploitive. And Rosie Perez has gone on to say that when they were filming that, she felt very uncomfortable. She felt very exploited. She, this was her first film role. She didn't know how to deal with this. And apparently, you know, you can't see her face in any of these shots, but apparently she was crying the whole time. You know, she's gone on to say that Later, she has felt more comfortable about it, but still, that sucks. That really sucks. And, you know, there is a bit of a growth in terms of Spike and the way that he has written women from his first two films, She's Gotta Have It, and School Days, which do contain some sexual assault against women in those films, which he has gone on to say in more present times that he regrets putting those moments, especially in She's Gotta Have It, So it's a bit of a growth, but there's still room to grow. And, you know, there's always room to grow. I think constantly male filmmakers do have to check themselves on these things and really make concerted efforts and ask questions to the right people who will be honest with them about how these things do come off. So, again, speaking of Miss Rosie Perez, let's get into some of the aspects of this film that remind me of a play. So, first of all, this film starts with essentially what is an overture, right? It is an epic, epic, epic opening of the film, probably one of the most epic openings of any film. It is essentially Rosie Perez dancing on a stage, again, like a piece of theater, to a bunch of different backdrops to the song Fight the Power Power. by Public Enemy. So this is giving you a lot of flavors that you will see in the film before the film actually starts. And that's the whole purpose of an overture. When you're going to see a musical, you are hearing bits and pieces of the music. You're getting the themes. You're getting, you know, what is going to come to you in the next two hours. And man, does Rosie absolutely deliver. Apparently, they took eight hours to shoot that, and she is just dancing her ass off. What an introduction to the world via Rosie Perez. It is absolutely stunning. And when I was watching this movie, I mean, the rhythms of the dialogue are very, very much like a play. I often will compare Spike Lee to August Wilson, August Wilson being one of the most prolific black playwrights. And then, of course, Spike Lee being one of the most prolific black filmmakers and using settings very specifically in both of their works. And also there's something about this world in general that does kind of remind me of an August Wilson play. 
this world operates in a way that is, I feel like adjacent to ours. It is very much rooted in realism that's like turned up a bit of a notch. The way that these people talk and the way that they operate is on a very specific, almost musical rhythm a lot, which I love. I think enough screenwriters don't pay attention to the rhythms of their screenplays anymore. And that's something that I always do. When I'm writing, I'll read through a scene and be like, does it have a flow? Does it feel like these are rhythms that these people would talk in in this world? There's also the character names in this movie. You know, you have Mookie, you have Buggin' Out, you have Mr. Senior Love Daddy, you have DeMayer, you have Mother Sister, you have Radio Rahim. August Wilson does this quite a bit in his plays too. It's like these people have nicknames and Spike Lee in his journal is very, very, very persistent about that from Jump. He has a whole list of nicknames that he's heard from various places, and I think some that he's made up, that he puts in this huge list. And he ends up using most of them, which is very, very cool. And again, that's kind of what makes this world feel even more specific, especially in the first two acts. I think in the third act, it gets very, very real once we start getting to the uprising and the tensions really, really, really coming to a boil. And I have to say, the way that Spike Lee writes Italian characters, it's like, this guy is such a great listener. These Italian characters in this film, and then also in Jungle Fever, I mean, just, again, very specific rhythms, very specific way of speaking that being around a lot of Italian-Americans from New York, it just feels so absolutely real. And, you know, speaking of Jungle Fever, I really didn't talk about the performances of the three Italian men in this, but they're also great. I love, you know, in talking about the contrast between Giancarlo's character and this and School Days, there's a really nice contrast between John Turturro's character as Pino in this movie and as his character in Jungle Fever. In this movie, he is incredibly racist, very overtly so. There's a great scene where he's explaining to Mookie that he loves all these famous black people, but he doesn't consider them to be niggers. And I think that that's a point of view that a lot of people have, and it's a very important point of view to display in this film. Versus in Jungle Fever, he is really the only Italian person besides um, besides Annabella, Shiora, who doesn't really have a problem with black people and ends up dating a black woman at the end of the film. So... Having this repertoire of people that he's working with also is another thing that really feels like a play. There's also these groups of Greek choruses. There are the three men who sit at the corner, whose names are M.L., Coconut Sid, and Sweet Dick Willie. Again, just great, amazing names. And they are played by Paul Benjamin, Frankie Faison, and Robin Harris. They are so fucking funny and they spit so many truths throughout this film and just talk a lot of shit. They feel like very, very real characters. They do amazing, amazing commentary on things that are happening in this film. And Spike 
also let them improvise. He's like, I'm not going to write lines for Robin Harris. This guy is fucking hilarious. Anything that I write will not be nearly as funny as the shit that he will just say. And he really let these guys riff off each other. There's also the group of kids in which Martin Lawrence is part of. They also kind of feel like a Greek chorus. They like bop around the neighborhood. You'll see them with different groups. You'll see them with bugging out. You'll see them having this really great discourse, this kind of like young versus old discourse with DeMayer. And they absolutely represent kind of the next generation that's kind of below the age group of Mookie, Bugging Out, and Radio Rahim. It's just such interesting and prolific work. It's so interesting that Spike in his journal talks about how he wanted to cut down on some of the monologues and stuff because... He didn't want it to really feel so much like a play, but it still ends up feeling like a play. There's just a specificity and a a dearth and a wealth of world building here that, again, you don't really see a whole lot. And that, I think, is what makes a good movie really specific world building because that's what films are supposed to do, right? Films are supposed to transport you to another world. Even if that world is part of our world, it's gotta be specific. It's gotta be specific. And that and this film absolutely delivers. And there's also another part that feels like a play, which is when everyone is delivering their racial slurs from all different groups to camera. You have Mookie doing it about the Italians. You have John Turturro doing it about black people. You have the Koreans doing it. You have the Puerto Ricans doing it. And this absolutely feels like something that would be in a play. You would have each person on stage kind of standing in some sort of line or some sort of formation. And you would have the spotlight going on each of them while they're just yelling out these racial slurs toward the audience. It is such an amazing, amazing part. And of course, that ends with Samuel L. Jackson delivering this amazing, amazing part of the film, which we use in the theme song of this show. So when things get a little bit more hyper real, I would say, is of course the uprising at the end. And this is where we're talking about pizza and protests. The way that race and race relations are handled in this film feels so absolutely real. And it really does feel like something that's very for us, by us. I love the fact that Spike Lee did everything he could to make the ending feel real, to not make it super amicable or super like everything is going to be okay. He makes it feel absolutely real. And I mean, seeing these cops, and these are, again, the same two actors and the same two cops that we see in Jungle Fever... It's just so absolutely real. I mean, when they end up choking out Radio Rahim and killing him, it is just so real to the point that it is, of course, incredibly, incredibly upsetting. And it's very real that these cops don't call the ambulance. They just put him in the back of the car. And I think it's very real that Mookie throws the garbage can 
through the window because Sal's response to Radio Rahim being killed is he says to the people, you got to do what you got to do or some bullshit like that. And that is so angering. You are in a place where you are serving the black community and the black community is serving you by supporting your business. So you absolutely have the right to fuck that place up. And that is where the incident started. This incident would not have happened if Sal was just more reasonable about doing something so simple, which is supporting the people that support him financially. There would be no business without the black people in this community. And that is what I don't understand in terms of these uprisings that happen and these rebellions that happen. When people are more concerned about the damage of property than they are about the taking of black lives. It is so incredibly upsetting. And watching the film this time around, it really made me cry watching this rebellion because it is a concept that people still don't understand. They're always just like, well, why do you have to destroy property? Why this? Why that? It's like, well, why do black people have to consistently lose their lives for no fucking reason at all? At all. And people still don't understand that. That property is insured. They will be fine. It will be rebuilt. But these people's lives, once a life is taken, that's it. That is it. And don't you think our lives matter more than a place that is insured and that will get everything back? It's so crazy to me that, and it's, well, crazy and not crazy, that a lot of white people's response to this movie was, well, do you think Mookie did the right thing? That is so (laughs) not the point. That is so not the point, and people still don't get it. And it's so sad, because it's like, will people ever truly get it? I hope so, but even after the things that happened last year, you know, George Floyd, Elijah McClain, Breonna Taylor, people still don't get it. And this is in 1989, where he is responding to people who had been killed then. And you see people get hosed in this film. There's no reason for that. It's just, it's incredibly upsetting. And I'm so glad that this movie tackles this issue head on. I'm so glad that Spike made this movie and this movie will live on forever. It's so crazy to me that all these, and again, not crazy, that all these studios and production companies, well, mostly studios, because this is Spike's production company, were, their response to the script was, well, won't this incite riots among black people? And Spike's response was, well, do you see white people getting violent, you know, when they see an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? Like... It's such a ridiculous, ridiculous concern, and it just really continues to prove that 
so many people just don't understand. And if you want to be a true ally, you have to understand. And the way that this film ends with the Martin Luther King quote and the Malcolm X quote, these ideas that seem to be opposing, but they're not, they're really giving you two ways to move forward is just really beautiful. And those are the two people that Smiley, played by Roger Gunnar Smith, puts up on the wall as Sal's is burning down. And again, what a beautiful moment. So in conclusion, this is a pretty close to perfect film. I mean, the screenplay is absolute brilliance and it represents race relations and hot ass days in New York to the utmost accuracy. These performances are legendary. The design is so on point. The camera work is so on point. And this film conveys so much in such a simple way. This is one of the few black films that most white people have seen and at this point love. And for once, they're right about something. Out of all the Spike's films that I have seen, I have not seen all of Spike's films. I think this one will live on the longest and is a perfect example of activism through art. This film is available to stream on Showtime and available to rent on Amazon and Apple TV. And I highly, highly recommend buy this film on the Criterion Blu-ray. This is one of the most beautiful packagings and most cohesive packagings that I've ever, ever seen. So pick it up, scoop it up. You will not regret it. So in closing for today, some food for thought. What are some other Black films that you consider to be ride or die slash perfect films? Comment on our Instagram, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Follow us on Instagram, at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a little rating. Give us a little five star, if you will. And also follow the podcast on Spotify if that is where you listen. Thank you so much, per usual, to the team. Y'all are so amazing and incredible. We have Matt Mozzarella on the audio. We have Cindy Edward, who is our production assistant and just kills it every single week. And we also have Miss Amanda Seals, our executive producer. And thank you all for listening to the podcast week to week. This would not happen without you. We will be taking a short break next week, but we will be back the week after on Tuesday, March 30th, getting into the nitty gritty of the masterpiece 2017 comedy Girls Trip. So see y'all then. And of course, we will be ending this episode with Fight the Power. Stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. I love y'all. Bye. Another summer Sound of the funky drummer Music hitting your heart Cause I know you got soul Hey, listen if you're missing y'all Swinging while I'm singing Giving what you're getting Knowing what I'm knowing While the black band's sweating In the rhythm I'm rolling Gotta give us what we want Gotta give us what we need